Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44, the story of Lazarus being resurrected from the dead. We see the fully human Jesus unfold and bloom in this story. A Jesus who must hold back from healing someone for whom he holds a particular love. A Jesus who weeps for a man's death before he calls him back to life. We hear this Jesus say, I am the resurrection, the light, the word, and now even the resurrection. In just one chapter, he embodies the biggest and most abstract realities and also walks into the depths and particularities of human suffering. Thanks for being with us. Hey, Bobby. How are you? Hey, Amy. I'm doing pretty well. How are you? It's so funny, like, having this moment each week to be like, what of interest has happened to me (laughs) since last week that would be, like, of possible general interest? Yeah. And um, it's a, a real short short list this week, Bobby. Yeah. Do you have an, you have anything? You have little people who do yeah. funny things. I was going to say nothing My interesting. My do grumpy things, but <laughs> not really funny things. Yeah. I was going to say nothing really interesting has happened to me since March of 2022. Although that's mm-hmm. not entirely true because I've had a kid since then. But it's like... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't get a lot bigger than that. Like my yeah. life used to have like all sorts of interesting, or at least sort of interesting dimensions to it. And now it is mostly... I have little kids and I do a mm-hmm. podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was, we're just starting to talk as a staff about what, what people are doing over the summer. Yeah. And it's hard for me to even think about, I mean, I just have so much planning to do for next year over the summer. Like summer is my planning time. Yeah. But it is beginning to occur to me that if I don't go out into the world and have experiences, I really don't have very interesting things to teach. Yeah. You know, like I just become, all my stories are about what happens in my office. <laughs> yeah. No one wants to hear that story. So <laughs> yeah. I, though my nature is just to like put my head down and get my tasks done, I think I actually need to go out into the world and like do a thing for at least a few days this summer. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's yeah. really true. And, you know, they say that about like novelists and things that like you need to have yeah. lived some life in order to write You have some to things. go do something. But I think that's true yeah. of teachers too. Like eventually you just begin to teach in this sort of like abstract, you know, like yeah. disconnected kind of way. And that's much less interesting than teaching like based on real things that you're actually doing and thinking about. Yeah, I, I think that's true. So I'll report back on what, what interesting plans I come up with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sounds great. Sounds great. Oh, for this week, we are in John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44, which is the story of a man named Lazarus. Yeah. We read last week from chapter 10, Mm -hmm. so haven't moved ahead too far. But I need to ask you, has John already introduced Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? 
No, this is actually the first time we encounter them. Okay. We encountered three characters in the Gospel of Luke. The Lazarus was clearly a different Lazarus because Lazarus was that poor man. thank you, because I was confused. I was like, is there another story later where he's dead? Like, what? (laughs) Okay, got it. Yeah, so there's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke. And then there's the characters of Mary and Martha, who we talked about last year as well, who are in Luke. I think it's Luke chapter 10. And Jesus goes to their house and Martha's real busy and Mary sits at his feet and Jesus says, Mary has chosen the better part. And there's an interesting question. Like, clearly these are the same sisters. Yeah, yeah. But it's an interesting question, or uh, at least an open question, about whether John, whether we ought to have that story in the back of our heads when we read this story, or whether John's audience doesn't know that story at all, and this is the first time they've encountered them. I don't know how much it changes the way that you read it, but as far as the Gospel of John goes, we have not met Mary or Martha or Lazarus at this point in the text. That is very helpful. Thank you. Because I had not met them. (laughs) But it's good to know others have not met them either. Okay. Okay. So given that background that I really needed, is there anything else you want to say before we get started with the text? One thing that might be useful by way of framing this text is just to recognize, we've, we've been talking in the Gospel of John about this sequence that goes sign, dialogue, discourse. Mm -hmm. Jesus Mm -hmm. does a thing, then people talk about it, and then he explains it. We've seen that several times in the Gospel of John. This text, which is Jesus's last sort of miraculous sign prior to the actual crucifixion and resurrection, the order is reversed. So Jesus talks about the sign, then we get a discussion about it, and then he actually does it at the end. So where we've been sign, dialogue, discourse, this time we get discourse, dialogue, sign. I don't know how much difference that makes, but it is noticeable um, that we, I mean, Jesus basically interprets this whole thing before he ever does anything. So by the time we get to the actual sign, we read it differently because we've already unpacked it. That's fascinating. I definitely experienced this story differently, but not with that explicit sort of uh, framework in my mind. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to read it and hold that hold that framework as it unfolds. Okay, so I'm reading from the NRSV, and I'm picking up in John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I was really taken by verse two, this image, not just of anointing the Lord with perfume, but wiping his feet with her hair. I wrote in the margin, whoa. Yeah. (laughs) What do you think we should take from that about their relationship? Uh, That's such a good question. And, you know, this is an interesting move by the gospel writer, John, because he's actually going to tell us that story at the beginning of chapter 12. Mm. So this is an anticipatory note. So he's referring to an event as though we know what he means when uh-huh. it hasn't happened yet. 
Uh-huh. Which is fascinating. Yeah. I don't quite know what to make of it at this moment in the text, other than to say that this Mary is an important person and that this thing that she's about to do in the next chapter is memorable. And I think it shows some kind of depth of connection between Jesus and Mary that goes beyond just like their friends or whatever, but they like, there is a real connection between the two of them. And I don't know what other, like, so for me, like, I think one thing that it functions to do in this moment is to say, these are people who are really important to Jesus and we already know it. And we we know that Jesus is important to them based on this thing that we're going to hear about later. And so we're already in the world of kind of deep relationships mm-hmm. right when we start this text. I love that. And I, uh, you know, you said pe- that. How did you say it exactly? That you expressed a sort of mutuality of, yeah. of their connection. And at least in the beginning part of this story, that's something I have a question about. Like, clearly, Mary f- feels this connection yeah. to Jesus, but I don't feel like I know quite yet what Jesus's connection to them is. And that sort of, the connection you're describing comes out, you know, over the course of the story. But yeah. But yeah, she certainly, I mean, it's not just deference and honor. It's, there's such an intimacy. Yeah. Wash someone's hair with your feet. My God, I wouldn't do that for my children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, I said that backwards. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't wash someone's hair with my feet. That would be kind of entertaining. <laughs> Washing someone's feet with my hair. That would be, that is very, uh, yeah. <laughs> my. So then. So then being in this this mental state that I was, I guess, not not knowing yet or not being sure yet of Jesus's sense of connection and where Lazarus fits into yeah. all of this, this this quote in in verse three, he whom you love is ill. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I, I don't know. Does it just feel so like personal and particular and specific? Yeah. Does it? I mean, is that all there is that all there is to say about that? It, I mean, I just I, it reminds me of the Akedah. It reminds mm. me of like uh, God commanding Abraham to kill yeah. the son whom you love. Yeah, like there, it really it's so. It, that's where I really see at least Mary saying there you do have this personal connection, or the sister saying you do have this personal connection. That's really helpful, Amy, because you know I think as you're as I'm reflecting on this with you, I think I'm sort of anticipating some things that are going to happen later in this story and also later in the gospel. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. do suggest this kind of mutuality of connection, but I think you're right that at the beginning of this text we don't know that exactly from Jesus, and so this reminder from Mary. The, the one whom you love, uh, from Mary and Martha, the one whom you love is yeah. ill. And so they're kind of calling on Jesus to say, like, don't forget, like, this is the one who is dear to you. It's yeah. interesting because Lazarus, I mean, we haven't seen him so far in this gospel. And yeah. we don't see him, this character, Lazarus, in the other gospels. And so this kind of depth, like, to call him the one whom you love suggests that he's really, really essentially important to Jesus. And when we, but we don't know anything ab- about him. He just kind of appears this way. Yeah. There is this other mysterious figure in the Gospel of John who is called the beloved disciple or the disciple whom you love. And there's an mm-hmm. argument about who that is. Some people think that it's the Gospel writer John or whoever, you know, 
whoever, what his, ever his actual name was, which is not unreasonable. But there's also people who think that that beloved disciple, who's not actually referred to in the gospel until after this chapter, uh, is actually Lazarus. And so he, he becomes sort of after his resurrection, the, uh, spoiler alert, he becomes the yeah. <laughs> kind of key disciple. I don't know what you make of that, but it is interesting that there is such a sense that Lazarus is a beloved disciple, if not the beloved disciple, but we didn't, yeah. we didn't know about him until right now. Yeah, I mean, it's so surprising. The line is so surprising to me here that, again, before I had read the rest of the story, I was like, are they just saying that so he'll come back? Mm-hmm. Like, I, should I believe them? that Lazarus is so beloved to them. Yeah. But, but yeah, it seems, it seems that it was true. And then Jesus's response, it, there's just, I have so many questions about <laughs> yes, this. Yes, yes. This illness does not lead to death. Yeah. Let's just stop there for a minute. What, it, what does that mean? I really like that translation in the NRSV. The CEB is this illness isn't fatal. Mm-hmm, which is... Which I was like, is that what that means? Yeah. And what I like about the NRSV, you know, we've been talking all the way through the Gospel of John about how things that are said in this gospel have multiple senses about them. Yeah. One of which is very kind of literal and enfleshed, and the other of which has some deeper purpose. Yeah. And this isn't fatal in my mind. Mm-hmm. Leans into that's just the, not true. Yeah. Like he does, it is fatal. Yeah. He does die. Now Jesus has said something that turns out to be counterfactual. Yeah, and that creates some problems. The NRSV's translation, you can read it that way. Like this doesn't lead to death. Yeah. Can mean he's not going to die, which turns out not to be true in this text. But once you've read the story once, anyway, you kind of know that there's this other meaning that ultimately it doesn't lead to death. Or ultimately, it's pointing actually to the defeat of death. It ultimately leads to a, trans- a transformed life. We don't know that as readers unless we have experienced this before. Mary, Martha, the disciples, they don't know this either. So if you're following through with the characters, you, tend- you would tend to read it as Jesus saying he's not going to die. But in fact, right. that's, not, that's not what he means. I like that a lot because then when, yes, yes, because you can be with the characters as the story is unfolding for them. Or you can read with the knowledge that, like, death is not the end of this story. Right. There is death involved. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, And like many things in John's gospel, you can go back at the end of the story and you can read the earlier part of the story. Now that you know what you know, by the end, you can go back and reinterpret what happened in the beginning. This is true on this micro scale here in this story. But it's also true of the Jesus story as it's told by John. There are things that you do not know if you're a disciple in the text leading up to Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. And when you get to the Jesus's resurrection, you can go back and read the whole gospel and the story of Jesus and you understand it differently. So this story is kind of that same dynamic, but in microcosm. Yeah. Verse six for me, when it says he stayed two days longer in the place where he was, yeah, is so painful yeah. to read. And I think for me, there is some resonance with the Akedah in some way, the binding of Isaac, yeah. like this willingness to let the one whom you love die for God's glory. Yeah. It, is it painful for you to read as a Christian or is the pain diminished because you know he'll be resurrected in this story or because 
because of a, you know, a different belief system about the role of death and the order of things or is this a painful verse for you? That's such an interesting question, Amy. And, you know, I don't know that I've really thought about it in exactly those terms. And in the, in the previous verse, John takes the time to tell us again, Jesus loved Martha, yeah. her sister, and Lazarus. Yeah. So in case you weren't clear, Jesus does yes. love them. And now we have it in the yes. voice of the narrator, not simply in the voice of a character. And then the very next thing is, so he waited two days. And so, it, so he waited. It really does amplify that thing that you're that you're saying. You know, I I think I think it is painful, but I think if you know the end of the story, and then maybe if you if you believe the end of the Christian story, mm-hmm. maybe it's less painful. But I'm not actually sure it's supposed to be less painful. Like I think maybe it's supposed to be stark. And that's why John has just reminded us that Jesus loves them and yet he waits. Yeah. What you do with that, I think, is an interesting question. Like the way you said it is, are you, are you willing to sacrifice the one you love for the glory of God? Which puts a really fine point on it. And also, I think your gesture back to the binding of Isaac is a really poignant one in that way. Another way to read it is to say, Jesus here is not in the business of preventing death. God is not in the business of preventing death. And, but in, in the, is interested in transforming death into new life. And we can't put all that together, I think, at this moment in the yeah. text. Yeah. But I kind of tend to read it that way, which is to say, if Jesus just swooped in and said, I'm on my way, like, don't die, yeah. Yeah. then the importance of this story, like, that's great, right? This one person that I love did not die. But that what actually happened is going to happen at the end of this text is much more profound than that. And I think it true to, yeah. true to our experience, too, to say, like, you know, if Jesus could stop death, why doesn't Jesus stop it in my case? Yeah. Or the person I love. And here it's not that. It's uh, death happens. That's part of the human experience. Jesus doesn't interrupt that process. But then once it has happened, he transforms the significance of it. And that's what brings glory to God. So I, I think it's worth holding both of those kind of ideas yeah. out there. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's right. And it occurs to me as you're talking, too, that theoretically, Jesus could have gone to be with them at the moment of death and not healed him. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't seem to be on the table yeah. for, whatever, for whatever reason, which I don't know is just— it's it. it I, f- I feel like in this story we see a lot of Jesus's humanity, and that's yeah. I don't know. I, I could see how if you had the capacity to heal someone you loved, being with them at the moment of their death would be be real tempting. Oh, that's that's an interesting <laughs> reading. So he holds back precisely so he doesn't like so he front doesn't run the inter- miracle. He knows this has to yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Amy, I'm so mm. interested in your reading because you know one of the things that. I say often about texts like this is it's really hard to read these once you've read them, (laughs) you know, it's hard to experience them either the way that the initial readers would have experienced them or the way that the people living through the story would have experienced them. You have fresher eyes about these things than I do. And so I'm just curious about like when you don't have the sort of ways of complicating it, depending on the end of the story and you just are reading it through, does it, is the Akida kind of where your mind went? Like, what did, what did you do with this 
detail? I mean, the Akeda sort of, and I, I guess I sort of felt both, both this sense of like the, the, the moments in our lives that we have called out to God to come and help and to see so specifically here, God heard, mm-hmm. God, Jesus heard and stayed where he was. Yeah. Because that's what had to happen. Yeah. Both. Of course, there's truth in that. And that's the way the world works. And it was painful. Yeah. And then also to to empathize with Jesus as having a relationship with this person, with these people. And it's not just Lazarus suffering. It's yeah. Lazarus's sisters and loved ones who are suffering Absolutely. watching his death. And and there's a reason for waiting, but it it seems it seems to hurt Jesus too in some way. Yeah. It's just painful. The other thing that's maybe worth mentioning is that we've seen this dynamic before in John, right? Where all the way back in chapter two, where his mother asked him to do the miracle at the wedding and he's like, mm-hmm. it's not my time. Or the royal official who asked mm-hmm. to have his mm-hmm. son healed and Jesus said, why do you people need miracles all the time? There has <laughs> been throughout this gospel, this sort of sense that, Jesus doesn't act when he's asked to. He acts when he wants yeah. to. Yeah. And I don't know if there's a theology. We talked mm-hmm. about the theology of that a little bit, like God is God, Jesus right. is Right, you're Jesus. not controlling God with your prayers. Mm-hmm. And yet it seems like ultimately the requests yeah. do get carried out, just not exactly yeah. in the yeah. way or in the time you wanted. And I don't know whether we should fold this story into that interpretation or not, but I, but I think it's available for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, shall we go on? I think so. Okay, so I'm picking up then at verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you, and are you going to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble because they see the light of this world, but those who walk at night stumble because the light is not in them. After saying this, he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought that he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. I'm sorry, that's so funny. (laughs) (laughs) for your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him Thomas who was called the twin said to his fellow disciples let us also go that we may die with him it's so hard to read this because I'm like what is the right inflection of one's voice like this is a kind of comical yeah I think unfolding of things yeah it's there's another part coming up later too, where I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how to inflect this. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. interesting. Like, cause you know, we tend to think like, Oh, like the, the literal meaning of the text or whatever, but there's a whole lot that happens in language that is by way of tone and inflection and just the words on the page. Don't like you, you are interpreting it by the way you read it. By the way you read it. You are Mm -hmm. absolutely. I think it's pretty, I like, I I was glad that you pointed out that it's funny because I like, this is kind of a funny and Jesus has been in the business in the Gospel of John, as, as we've been talking about, of saying really complicated things. And people yeah. are always like, never sure whether to take him literally like, or not I don't know what literally. you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I like uh-huh. how he's just finally, he's just like, 
he's dead, y'all. <laughs> like, I know. He keeps peeling it back and peeling it back. Yeah. Until it's all the way back. Yeah, it's all the yeah. way back. Mm-hmm. Okay, but his first answer about the 12 hours of daylight and the 12 hours yeah. of darkness. Can you peel that back a little bit? Is that related to the part about Lazarus or is that just related to the part about there being danger for him in Judea? I My first reading about it is about there being danger in Judea. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, so literally what he's saying is we got to go while it's light because we can't go when it's dark or we'll trip. Uh, and, then, <laughs> oh. and then there's another meaning behind that, of course, and we've seen it all the way throughout John's gospel about light, light and darkness and yeah. truth and mistruth and all of these things. And uh, so he seems to be also saying we've got to live in the light where you've got to claim your truth. And while I'm here, we can do that. And so that we've got to. I think he's. I think he's saying we've got to act according to our beliefs, no matter what the danger is, because that if if you try to walk at night, if you try to hide things or do things in nefarious ways, you're you're mm-hmm. not gonna. Or you, I guess if you try to hide from danger, even you're not going to be successful. Yeah, I don't immediately connect it to anything with Lazarus, other than they've got to go to Judea to be with. Right, right, and and so maybe you know he. It's kind of interesting that he just starts with, let's go back to Judea. Yeah. And they say it's dangerous. And he says, I don't care that it's dangerous. But if he had if he had started out saying, let's go back to Judea, Lazarus is dead and I'm going to resurrect him, yeah. then it seemed like they could have short-circuited this whole yeah. you know, conversation. So it's interesting to me that it that he starts by saying, like, yeah, there's danger. We gotta go. Like, yeah. And we still have to go. And then goes into the reason, which is actually a very compelling reason. It is. Although I don't know how compelling it is to the disciples. They don't really comment on it. It is interesting that, you know, you want, one wonders what the disciples' response might have been in verse 8 if Jesus had said in verse 7, let's return to Judea to resurrect Lazarus. They probably would have been like, let's do it. Yeah. But when he's, yeah. when he's vague about it, then they say, oh, no, they're going to stone you and you want to go back. And... Right. So there's a sense in which it, it doesn't matter exactly what the mission is. It's just you've got to you've got to go live your life in the light. Yeah. Without thinking, of, you, you know, you're not weighing out the like, is this particular is worth task it? worth it or yeah. not? You just do the thing that that's needs to be done in the light. Yeah. 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 He's and Jesus isn't deciding to go back willy nilly, but but he could have. Yeah, he could have. <laughs> sure. He could have. Why do you think Jesus starts out by saying Lazarus has fallen asleep and I'm going to awaken him? My reading of that is that this gospel is trying to make us think differently about the categories of life and death. And so death in that sense is not permanent in the way that Mm -hmm. we thought it was. Mm -hmm. It is more akin to falling asleep. And life is not impermanent in the way that we're used to thinking of it. And so where we think like there is life and then there is death, Jesus is saying they're a little like the boundaries are are unclear. And if you continue to think life, then death, you're missing something about life and about death. So I think that sleep metaphor sort of captures that. It's, it's a different state, but it's not permanently different. I think that makes so much sense. 
And I think I'm being too literal here, Bobby, but I just keep thinking, I, I, yeah, I just, it's so hard for me to get out of the literal mindset with this, but, but you know, the, the response of the disciples, like, well, then he'll be fine because that's the natural order of things. Right. The reality is, is it's not the natural order of things to wake up from your death. Right. And that's why Jesus has to go. Right. But I think I'm being too literal. I don't think you're being too literal. I don't. You know, the, the question of like, why does Jesus say it this way? And what do the disciples hear when he says it this way are kind of, they're related questions, but they're different. And this is another example where Jesus is saying yeah. something that's rather profound. The disciples are hearing something that's quite literal. Yeah. They don't have any other categories. They right. don't have the categories necessary to hear what Jesus is actually that's saying. Right. That's right. So it's a yep. totally legitimate, and I think, I think exactly the way the disciples would have heard it. Because you don't know, you don't know what Jesus means until you can experience until the resurrection been, right. and then go back and say, oh, that's what he meant. You know, and it's that's so interesting that you say it this way because reading the last part of this passage we just read, for some reason it made me think of parenting. Mm. Like, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. Yeah. Like, we're doing this the hard way for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason is so that you will learn something. Yes. But just like in parenting, you know, I always wish that my kids would would sort of be on board with the learning. They're not on board because they don't know what the learning is. Right. Like they're not going to know until they know. Right. And so none of it makes any sense to them. And it's really, it is hard and lonely to be the one sort of driving that ship, especially when it involves someone suffering, which for the disciples here, it doesn't. For Lazarus's family, it does. Mm-hmm. And for Jesus, um, it does. And for Jesus, it does. Yeah. No, I think that's really well said. And, you know, if you only knew what's coming, you would understand what we're doing, but you don't. And so we've got to, you know, as an educator, you know, like this is just the way education is, right? People people yeah. never understand the value of where they're going because if they already knew it, they wouldn't need to be educated. They would already know it. And so there's an inherent sort of imbalance and tension. In this case, it's oh, a pretty man. profound that- one. It is profound. And that that articulation of being an educator, which is so true, just made me like see the impossibility of the task of being an educator sometimes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We want our kids to be like interested and motivated, but why would they be? And you have to lead people into things that they do not understand. Yeah. And you can't give them the answer out of the back of the book because then they will never understand. And it's good for them to, I mean, if you're teaching them something valuable anyway. Right. It's good for them, but but they have to go through that experience of anxiousness. The, yes, yes. I'm glad you used the word anxiousness because it's anxiousness and it's danger. He's telling them yes. we have to go into danger and it's pain and it's and it, it we want so much, I mean at least going back to the parenting metaphor to circumnavigate those things and to believe that our role is to protect you know our our children or our people from those things, but mm-hmm. it's precisely not. That is not Right. Our role is to show people how to how to be in them and get through them. And yeah. although, although, okay, I'm not going <laughs> to skip to the end of the story. I'll, I'll get to the end of the story later. Okay, yeah. I'm not going to do it. Thomas's answer, mm-hmm. let us also go that me, we may die with him. When I first read that, I thought he meant with Lazarus. Oh, interesting. Which makes him sound snarky. <laughs> 
to me. Yeah. But the the note in my study Bible does not think he is snarky at all. Do you think he's snarky? That's so interesting because I've just been reading the CEB and the CEB substitutes that we, we may die with Jesus, which ah, is actually not in the Greek. That does not sound snarky. It doesn't. And so, so it's only when I go back and look at the Greek now that I'm like, oh, wait, that is vague. So I... No, I read Thomas. I was about to say, I really admire Thomas because Thomas is going to get a hard time at the end of this gospel, as you probably know, because he isn't there when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus appears to the disciples. And so he doesn't believe until he can see for himself. Mm -hmm. And so we call him Doubting Thomas. And he like, he has this like, his whole reputation is that he didn't believe. But here, Thomas is like, Jesus is Jesus and I'm on board. And if he dies, I'll die. He's, he understands the danger and yet. He wants to press ahead. So I, I don't read that as ambiguous, but it, it may just be because of my, of my familiarity. I, think, I mean, my I, think you're, I think your reading has got to be right, especially given that, you know, CEB goes that way. It's just the, the most recent reference to someone being dead was Lazarus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is maybe a comically wrong reading of that. Remember when we took that Song of Songs class and we had to translate all those crazy texts from the <laughs> yes. Zohar? And my translations were so wrong. It was like a comedy show happening <laughs> in my side of the classroom. Like I was reading a completely different I story. don't remember that part of it, but I do remember that the metaphors were hard to get they into any sort of town. sensible. Yes. Crazy town. But I entertained myself, so that's good. Now, I read this as going back to the light and dark thing. And so that it is acknowledging that, mm. that walking in the light is dangerous. And yet we must walk in the light because that is where we walk. And so Thomas is sort of doing that. We're going to go and we're going to do this thing. We're going to do, do it openly, even though we know that yeah. it is dangerous. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Maynard O'Connell, pastor of Park Hill Presbyterian Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, USA. And I am a Bible Worm supporter at the Bible Study Liturgy Worm level. I had finally decided that I was ready to work with the Narrative Lectionary when the pandemic hit. And then over that summer, I realized that several of the resources I was planning to use had shuttered. I was pretty upset, but I turned to Bible Worm and quickly realized that not only could I benefit from Bobby and Amy's fantastic exegesis and Bible study, but that I had found a community as well. I appreciate not only having colleagues from across the globe to think and study with, but also to be able to share the Bible study with a small class at my church. And the liturgy has literally been a lifesaver. It's the best use of my continuing education fund yet. I hope you'll consider becoming a Bible Worm supporter too. You can join for as little as $4 a month. Just go to patreon.com backslash Bible Worm podcast for details. And now back to this week's podcast. So I'm picking up in verse 17. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Mary said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. 
Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Hmm. Oh, man. This story is intense. It is very I much intense. I can make myself a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> I think the first thing that strikes me is this mention that he had already been in the tomb four days. Sure, yeah. Is there a particular significance of four days to you or— what do, you, what do you think it's trying to tell us with four days? Or is it just one of those random details that John likes to give us? Like it was two o'clock in the afternoon. Well, the way that I read it is that there was a belief in the ancient world. And I'm pretty sure in some ancient Jewish texts, you can find mm-hmm. it, that the soul or the spirit kind of hung around the body for the until the third day and mm-hmm. then departed. Mm-hmm. And so four days in my mind is to say, he's really dead, y'all. Like, in case there's any yeah. doubt about whether Lazarus is actually dead, once we're on day four, then he is Extremely officially dead. dead. Yeah, no, there there is um, there are some belief stories about that in some rabbinic texts. Yeah, it is an interesting question about what do they think he can do and why do they think he can do it. And you know, we've seen him do some signs in this gospel, but this one is pretty dramatic one. And whether they know he can do this or not, it seems like they think maybe he can't. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well. Although I'm interested by by Mary's sort of ask, mm -hmm. (laughs) which is indirect. You know, she doesn't say, raise him up. Mm -hmm. But she says, I know that whatever, whatever you ask will happen. You know, this reminds me of all the way, all the way back at the wedding at Cana. When Mary says, to, or I guess there it's, Jesus' mother is not named in John's gospel. So it's mm. when Jesus' mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Mm. We talked about how it's not clear that she knows what that means exactly. She's like, she's not sure what he's going to do, but yeah. she trusts that whatever he tells you to do, you should do it. Yeah. And here maybe is similar. Even now I know that whatever you ask, God will give you. So I don't know if mm. she knows what she thinks Jesus is going to do, but she knows that he has the authority and the power to do, to do something. Yeah. That's so interesting because it, you know, in the first story you mentioned with Jesus's mother, it's that the, the humans should trust Jesus and do yeah. what Jesus says. And here having, having the other side of it, it's sort of like imagining Jesus in this proverbial driver's seat and, and God trusting Jesus' read of what needs to happen. And I had not thought of things happening that way before. Mm -hmm. I had thought of things much more like God's kind of calling the shots and Jesus is doing the stuff, you know, that needs to happen. But is that a new thing in John? Or am I just like remembering it now? (laughs) No, I mean, Jesus has said previously, like, I do the will of the one who sent me. Yeah. And things like yeah. that, which suggest that yeah. God is the one who is driving the bus and Jesus is carrying out God's work. And here we have a, a, a different take on that, which is God is responsive to what Jesus asks. I don't know that it's different exactly, but it's yeah. differently inflected at the very least. Yeah. Although just because this is Martha's understanding of how that goes, that's I guess too. it doesn't necessarily mean yeah. that's. That is how it goes. It's just her read of it. Her statement at the end here seems really big. 
not just I know that you are the Messiah, and yeah. we have heard recently from the the blind man who becomes a seeing man that you are the Savior. I think he says, "I know you are the Savior," and here it's the Son of God. That's a that's a big statement. That is a big statement. Yes, like she seems to get this in a way that no one else in the gospel. She, we've seen people along the way, kind of piecing together who Jesus is. She's got the fullest statement so far. Yeah. About that. Yeah. And I mean, interestingly, she says it in response to Jesus's declaration, which is one of the, probably the most famous parts of the New Testament, even. Yeah. Yes. There's this misunderstanding where Jesus says, your brother will rise. And she says, I know that there's a general resurrection coming. And Jesus says, no, no. And then this statement, I am the resurrection and the life. Just so interested in what your response to that declaration Jesus makes in verse 25 is. You know, my first thought, it's so funny because I hadn't really thought of that question and as you were asking it, I was like, oh, shoot, <laughs> he's going to ask this big question. But my first thought was, you know, in the in the beginning of John, we got like, I am the, well, maybe not I am, but like Jesus is the light and yeah. Jesus is the word. Saying I am the resurrection in this context sounds almost like Jesus is like the embodiment of, of time to me, like a, is Mm. Uh, it, the fulfillment of time is embodied yeah. in this person, this, I don't know what word to use for Jesus, in this Jesus. Yeah. So it's like the moment has arrived. Like I I am the moment. Yes. And I don't know, I don't have other words to like translate that into different understandings because it's so abstract in some ways. Yeah. Because it's not just I am inaugurating that time. Like it's not I am the herald. I am the, you know, marker. I'm the trumpet blower. I am the resurrection. Yeah. And the life. And the life. I can't even get to the second part of the sentence. And the life. Yeah. And the life. How do you put those two things together? The resurrection and the life. You've said so many really beautiful things right there. And, you know, I, I love the way that you put it together. So that sort of like scholarly way of talking about John's understanding is realized eschatology, which I mean is a really helpful phrase, but also just kind of technical and dry or something. That in the arrival of Jesus, that time has been fulfilled. And that's what he seems, though this thing that you think is future has arrived in me. I love what you're doing then saying like, not just has it arrived in me, but it is me. I am. And, you know, we've seen since the beginning that Jesus, like in the prologue, nothing came into being except that which came into being through him. Like Jesus is the author of life in that sense, according to John's gospel. And so, so of course, when he arrives, he is the life and he is like, he, he always has been. But that arrival, like, this is me standing here. I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. Draws attention to that relationship. It It is the relationship with Jesus that is the resurrection. That kind of is, makes your head spin a little bit about mm-hmm. like, what exactly does that mean. But I think that's what Jesus has been about in John's gospel is coming into relationship with me, is coming into relationship with the light, with the life, with the mm-hmm. resurrection. 
and now it's all caught up in this in this relational thing that's not time bound it's not future it's not abstract yeah. here it is i mean i just was thinking as you were talking actually about the text you were reading about consuming jesus's flesh mm-hmm. and you know the rituals that came out of that in the christian community and i mean what <laughs> i'm going to say like what what an appealing thing to be able to ingest like the unity of all things, yeah. like the fulfillment of all things and have it become part of your body is, it, it seems like all the more important to have that kind of really concrete embodied ritual for that because yes. it's so big and so abstract. Like yes. how, you know, you can't, you can't chase that down with words. Yeah. And I, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, in addition to that image, John has used the language of abiding. Jesus abides yeah. in you and you in him. And so there's this sense in which Jesus is living out in you and you are living your life in Jesus. And Jesus is the life. Jesus is the resurrection. And so what's coming out from you is life and resurrection or should be anyway. Yeah. And I, what you're saying is exactly right. Like getting your head around that is really complicated which is one of the things that ritual does for us is it, it lets us yeah. articulate those things in ways that we can't fully explain, but which we can yeah. inhabit. Mm-hmm. You asked me about resurrection and life. And, you know, there's been some debate among scholars. I mean, really since the very beginning, like early, even early manuscripts, sometimes it will delete life because they say this is just mm. another verb, like this is redundancy. <laughs> and so, mm. um, but I think those two things are like, I am the resurrection. We've just been talking, Martha has, about the future resurrection. Jesus is that, right? Jesus is the life after death that has been promised, that has arrived. But I am the life to me is trying to transform the present and to say, like, it's not just a future reality that I am bringing, but it is like, I have made it present now. And so Jesus is about not just the transformation of death, but about the transformation of life here and now. There isn't, there isn't a, like a future thing that's coming that's better than the thing. Like we can go ahead and inhabit in some way that future life, even here and now, because Jesus has come among us, according to this gospel. Which is like, it's interesting to watch Lazarus too, because when he's resurrected, you know, in the next couple of chapters, he's just hanging out with Jesus and like eating dinner and being with his community and doing all the things. And, you know, yeah. like he, just li- he just goes on living his life. Yeah. He didn't do like the talk show circuit. <laughs> yeah. That's what totally what I would be doing. That's not that's not reported yeah. in the gospel. Yeah. All right. I think we need to push forward. Are you ready? I am. Okay. So I'm picking up in verse 28. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, 
Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Oh, we've already had once in the last passage, Martha sort of say, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Uh And then Mary says almost exactly the the same thing. Maybe Maybe it's word for, I don't know, I didn't check, but it basically says the same thing to him. And then the Jews who are watching say the same thing to him, essentially, not, not word for word, but couldn't you have prevented this? Mm-hmm. I don't even know what question to really ask here other than, like, it's so pointed. And yeah. Jesus knows it's true. Yeah. Why, why is it said so many times? I mean, I don't, why, why is the text dragging us through this so pointedly? That's such a I great question. I feel dragged. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's such a great question, Amy, and I appreciate the way that, that you've asked it. And, you know, my res- my initial response is because this is the human question. Yes. Right? This is the question that persists. And we and we raise it on the podcast Yes. quite often, actually. Uh, it, when we read miracle stories, we know yeah. once we have said, like, Jesus can do this thing, why didn't you do it for me? Why didn't you do it for my loved one? And and this is exactly what they're saying. We know you could have prevented this and you didn't. And so on the one hand, I think it's this deeply human question that every one of us, I think, can relate to. Yeah. And Jesus is, I was going to say he's unmoved by it, but it's not, it's not exactly right. He is not moved to action by it. Yeah. Which seems to capture something about the reality of the way God seems to work in the world is we think God could do things that God doesn't do. And that's our, that's our question over and over again. And Jesus's response is not to say, I could have intercepted this before Mm -hmm. the bad thing happened, but I can transform the bad thing that has happened into something even more profound than you could have imagined. So I, you know, in my mind, the persistent questioning is giving voice to us, I think, and also kind of driving home that disconnect between what we think God ought to be up to mm-hmm. and what Jesus thinks he ought to be up to. Mm-hmm. What do you do with it when you, when you read it? I mean, I think, I think, I think you're exactly right that this is, this is the question of the human experience. This is the question of a life of faith, yeah. right? Why, why didn't God help us in the moment that we needed it in the way that we wanted? <laughs> yeah. I think what really stands out to me here, and again, like this, the story will unfold, but Jesus doesn't respond to any of these things mm-hmm. directly, but he cries with them. Mm-hmm. And he asks where Lazarus is buried. Yeah. Like his response is very, and I know that, that, Folks in my life who are faithful Christians have have articulated this sense to me that that you know Jesus is with them in sorrow even if not quite doing what they wish yeah <laughs> what they wish would happen and that just feels so well illustrated here to me I guess yeah. and it was really surprising to me when Jesus began to weep yeah. Now, to me, this is one of the most powerful little s- narratives in the in the Bible. Like just this little section right here. Yeah. 
And one thing that I'm noticing differently, having now read this with you on, on the podcast, is that what they say to him in verse 34, Lord, come and see, is exactly what mm. Jesus was saying to everybody at the beginning yes. of the gospel. And yes. the way that I'm processing this, this is a little bit off the top of my head, but the way that it's sort of occurring to me is Jesus said, come and see, and I'll show you what God is like. And now here they're saying to God, come and see, and we'll show you what being human is like. Yes. And so Jesus then encounters like in full force, here's, here's what life looks like from the side of the flesh instead of the side of the word. And Jesus is agitated and, and, and weeps. So I wonder if Jesus is experiencing something here, you know, like part of the, part of the enfleshedness of God in the, pers- in the person of Jesus in Christian understanding is not only do we now see what God is like, but somehow God now also inhabits what being human is like. And there is this mutuality of new understanding yeah. here. And here might be a moment when that happens. Jesus finally gets it and it, and it, makes, him, it makes him weep. That is gorgeous. That's beautiful. I feel like I would be remiss if I did not mention the presence of Jewish community in these last couple sections of text that we've read. Absolutely. You know, the the last chunk, it just says they're they're there. They came from Bethany. They have come. Sorry, they came from Jerusalem. They have come to comfort Martha and Mary. And here it tells us again that they're with her. When Mary gets up to leave, they go and follow her. They weep with her. She is not, they're not, they're not alone. And it also seems, you know, since they, they do seem to be followers of Jesus, there was a, a fear in a previous text we read yes. that if you were a follower of Jesus, you would be kicked out of the community, basically. And they clearly have not been. Now, I, I appreciate your saying that so much. You know, we talked about the man who had been sitting by the pool at Bethsatha for 38 years and no one helped him into the pool. And we Mm -hmm. kind of said, look, if you come follow Jesus, you get a community that wouldn't have left you sitting there. And so we have said some things. John's gospel has said some things that can be read as pretty harsh about the lack of community in the Jewish world of this text. Mm -hmm. And I think I appreciate your bringing this up and exactly that, that there is a community here that does know who they are, presumably, and tends to them nonetheless. And, you know, how to process that in the light of the larger text of the gospel, I'm not sure. But one way that occurs to me is to say, it has been the religious authorities in the religious center where like religious faith and community gets caught up in issues of governance and power and all of these things. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who have been casting people out of communities here among among the folk Mm-hmm. The thing that matters first is that our our friends are sad and we and we need to tend to them. And so maybe there's a dis- we've tried to make a distinction between the people and the leadership and, yeah. and maybe this is an example of the people really coming through when they when they need to come through. Yeah. All right. Are we ready to move to the conclusion of this text? Let's do it. Picking up in verse 38. Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench, because he has been dead four days. 
Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Before we move on to this uh, mini sort of conversation aside that Jesus has with God, which I think is so fascinating. Yes. Why do you think it is, why do you think this starts with this like pointed reminder of that? I don't know, indignities of the human body by saying there's a stench, yeah. y'all. If we move this stone, you are not going to like what happens. I mean, the kind of trite reading of it is that John is just trying to reinforce for us that Lazarus yeah. is really, really yeah. dead. And you yeah. can't doubt the deadness because he smells. Yeah, right. He is literally decomposing. Mm-hmm. There may be a more profound way of reading that to say that this, you know, this is the the nature of human existence. Yeah. Is that it kind of stinks? <laughs> <laughs> the stench of yeah. death is around us. I don't quite know. I don't quite know where to go with that. But there's probably an opening there. I mean, it could just be that like as, you know, modern folk, we don't interact with decomposing bodies very much. Yeah. So it might be more jarring to me than it would have been to someone in an ancient context that we're talking about this, you know, the yeah. reality of this. Yeah. It is interesting that this sort of transformation of the human experience requires the kind of visceral encounter with the human experience. So yeah. Jesus has seen the dead body and wept. They're going to smell the death. Yeah. And and then out of that is going to come life. and. So maybe that maybe there's something to that that to really understand mm-hmm. what this I am the resurrection and the life means you have to really connect first to the reality of the human condition. Yeah. So when Jesus is speaking to God, he starts out by saying, "Father, I thank you for having heard yeah. me." Yeah. Is your translation the same tense? CEB is Father, thank you for hearing me. That seems so different. That verb is, NRSV is better. It's an aorist verb, so completed action. Mm-hmm. Thank mm-hmm. you for, thank you that you heard me. Why? why? Like, why, why is it past tense? Yeah, so interesting, isn't it? What, sort of in whatever translation, but thank you for having heard me with regard to this thing I'm about to ask you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like signing an email that's like, thanks for your understanding. In the hopes that someone will (laughs) understand. You can convince them to understand by being like, you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably a a way to read it. (laughs) That's a way. Theologically, maybe more developed would be something like, Jesus has such great confidence that God will respond to him. Yeah. He is able to thank God for already having responded to him. Yeah. We've actually talked about a couple times along the way the prophetic past in the Hebrew Bible, yeah. where you can talk about things in the past tense that have yet to happen in the future because you're so confident that they will come to pass. This, I think, is a, Jesus has such confidence that he can be thankful 
that a thing has happened which has not yet even been requested. And which he never expressly requests. That's true. Yeah, his direction is to Lazarus, not not to... Right, mm-hmm. right, right, not to God. Verse 42 reads like an aside to me. Like I almost wondered if I should drop my voice. Like the first <laughs> part, he wants everyone to hear. Father, <laughs> yeah. I thank you for having heard me. I know you're always hearing me, you know. It it reads so sort of awkwardly. Yeah, it does. Do we just let it go as it, it reads awkwardly or is sort of like a, I don't know. What, how, how do you read that, that verse in there? Yeah, I mean, my first response to it is, is that this is the gospel writer, John, trying to front run a theological problem that happens if you, yeah. if you say, thanks for hearing me. So John has said it for our benefit so that yeah. we know that God always does hear. I don't know that I don't know if there's anything more profound to pull out of there or not. Yeah, no, I think <laughs> I think that makes sense. I'm really struck by the actual scene of the resurrection in these last couple of verses. We've been sort of anticipating yeah. it for a long time now, and it happens so fast. And Jesus says Lazarus come out and then he comes out covered in cloth and then Jesus says unbind him. I'm curious what was like what was your response to that moment in the text where Lazarus comes out of the tomb? My response was I was struck by the fact that he was bound, which of course makes sense. And again, sort of emphasizes like the man was dead. Like this was, and and his body is back to life, but, but some things have happened. I also was really struck that, that Jesus doesn't say anything to him when he comes out. Yeah. Well, I mean, he says Lazarus come out, but mm-hmm. I almost get the sense, and I'm really am projecting this, but that this whole thing has been emotionally exhausting <laughs> for Jesus too. Yeah. It just seems like if if this this man that he had loved, that he did not come to heal intentionally, but has now risen from the dead, walked out of the tomb, that I don't know, I would have expected him to say something some kind of greeting to mm-hmm. Lazarus and he and the fact that he doesn't makes me think of him as exhausted that's interesting yeah do you find that strange that he doesn't say anything i do now that he doesn't you interact now that you have said it that way so lazarus whom he loves kind of becomes a prop in this text in the way that we've talked about some other people except not quite to me because we've already seen all this emotion from Jesus. Mm. And so I think I'm primed to read it differently because we've seen all that emotion. But you're right. We could see it as, we could see it as a prop. It is very personal. So maybe I want to take that back a little bit when, you know, Jesus calls him by name, which reminds you of the text that we read for Ash Wednesday of the shepherd knows the, knows the sheep and they Mm. respond to his voice. Lazarus is one of his sheep and Jesus calls him by name. And he, re- he does what he was called to do. Responding to Jesus seems to be sort of the clear meaning of discipleship for the Gospel of John. Jesus does the thing that Jesus instructs him to do. And mm-hmm. there, there is kind of an intimacy to the call. But it is interesting then that Jesus doesn't say anything. Like, I mean, I don't know what you would say <laughs> right there. Yeah. You know, but, but it is true. There's a, there is a, a tenderness in my reading anyway of the way that Jesus calls him out, but then sort of a, you want something more 
by way of interaction with Lazarus. I think also that unbind him makes sense. He's wrapped up in cloths. Yeah. And let him go. I don't know. That that gives, puts a different sort of inflection on it. Like he is bound like in a shackled kind of yeah. way. Yeah. Am I overreading that? I don't think so. You know, as, as with many things, I, I read this as sort of a literal binding on the one hand. Yeah. But also, yeah, right. I read this very much as a metaphorical binding, which is to say that, you know, human beings live enshrouded in death. Yeah. We kind of all do, whether we realize that we're doing it or not. We're, we're wearing death shrouds around with us, and that's just part of the nature of human existence. And so there's a metaphorical way of reading Lazarus here, which is relevant to all of us, which is to say, once you have experienced Jesus as the resurrection and the life, then you can live your life unbound. Death, death no longer has that binding effect. It doesn't cover your face anymore, and you are set free. Mm-hmm. That might be pushing a little too far, I don't know, but that, that's where my head goes in, in reading that line. Yeah, yeah. So this is a big story. <laughs> yeah. Deeply human story. What is standing out to you? The thing that's really been sticking out to me as we've talked about this text together is this sense in which the people are persistently asking for this one thing, like, why didn't you come and save our brother? You, we know you could have kept him from dying, but you didn't. And Jesus is sort of persistent. I, you know, that's not what he's about. In the end, he transforms death in like this profound cosmic way so that death now becomes something that is temporary. It's like falling asleep and you Mm -hmm. can have a life on the other side of death and you can have a full life on this side of death, but he doesn't take away the fact of death. And which is so different, you know, it's, it's like the people in the story are wishing for the avoidance of pain. Mm -hmm. Jesus doesn't give them that. The story has to lead you all the way through the pain. And then to say, the, but the pain is not the end of the story. The pain has a different meaning than you thought it had because there is, there is yet life, an abundant life on the other side. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Jesus cries in the middle of this story, is, as we were talking about, is so profound to me because he where he seems a little bit indifferent in parts of this gospel and in parts of this text, in that moment, you're like, there's the relatable Jesus. He understands what it means to be human. He's lost someone dear to him. He's gone through something painful. He's going to do yet more, of course, as the gospel goes on. And so in some sense, it takes away for me I don't know if it can, I don't know if anything can take away, but I think what it's trying to do is to say the pain of human life continues. You experience it. I experience it. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus experience it. Jesus experienced it. But the pain is transformed in this moment so that there is life on the other side of the pain, other side of death. And that unbinds us. It sets us free to live in a different kind of a way. And so when Jesus says, I am the resurrection, that's that. When Jesus says, I am the life, it means you and I could be sources of life that acknowledge that there is pain and yet 
continues to insist that the pain is not the not the final answer. I think that's not just in this story. I think that's actually in the story of the gospel as a whole, but it's in this story in microcosm. Yeah. It's to say we have to live through we have to live through the reality of human life. N- nobody can take that away, but we can experience that differently knowing that the power of life is, is greater than the power of death. That floated a little bit above the ground. I don't quite know how to make it touch, but that's kind of where this text takes me. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I want to ask you all these questions about that, and and yet I know that's not what we're doing. We're, <laughs> we're, we're coming to a close. We're coming to a close, but I suspect some of these themes will come up again, so I can ask you more questions later. I am so struck still by a comment you made, I don't know, a, 20 minutes ago about about Jesus seeing the pain of the human Mm. condition and really experiencing that. And, you know, I remember when we read some stories in the Hebrew Bible together, some of my favorite ones, or at least my favorite readings of them, are when it's not just the human who comes to understand something, but God is also figuring out, how do you have a covenant with a human? Like, humans need weird things. Like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and and— to this point, it seems like Jesus has realized, like, okay, signs actually are really helpful for humans. They get their attention, even though it's not really the point. Okay, fine. And this, it's almost like this story had to happen not just so the disciples could see this thing and believe differently, yeah. but also so that Jesus could see, you know, really deeply and personally this this aspect of yes. human existence. And, like, I, I feel like, I don't know how Jesus could come out of this story not having been somehow transformed. And I always, I don't know if it's because I read it as an outsider, but I come into the Gospels with this idea that Jesus is like perfect from the beginning, calling all the shots, knows everything as it's supposed to happen. And I, and there's n- and I don't tend to give a lot of room for development the way I do for the God in the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. But I see, I see that here. I see like a mutuality that feels really important to me. I love the way you say that. And I think that view of Jesus is particularly possible in the gospel of John, where he, we know from the beginning that he's the preexistent word and he does kind of go through the gospel Mm -hmm. at times seeming a little indifferent to what's Mm -hmm. going on with the humans. And this passage is not indifferent. This is a Jesus Mm -hmm. who is agitated and disturbed and who, who weeps and so sort of experiences the depth of reality of, of what it means to be human. I think that's exactly right. Oh, man. What a story. Mm-hmm. Next week, we will read John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, which is described as Jesus washes feet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's actually a really great story, and I'm looking forward to talking about it. But we have, we've talked more about feet today than I had imagined. That, that more we than we on a typical day. We'll talk yeah. about them even more next week. Okay. <laughs> I look forward to it. <laughs> Me too. All right. Take care. You too. See you next time. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible One. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Bible Worm Podcast for details. 
Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest supporters, Michelle Armstrong, Jennifer Ward, Brian Brock, Deb Hadachek, Jean Weisenbaugh, Rothia Cornelius, and Amy Chapman. Join us again next time as we read John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, the story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Until then, keep on